Amen. I'm going to invite you to open up to the book of Ephesians, and if you don't have a Bible, you can raise your hand, we'll give a Bible to you, and uh, you can take this Bible we give out home with you if you need a Bible, but it's page 674 in that Bible, Ephesians chapter 1. Um, Don't be shy, we'll hand a Bible to you, want you to be able to follow along. Um, I always seem to say this, but especially this text um, has a lot to offer us, and and it's dense, and so it would be good for you to be able to, to see the scripture there. Been excited about the beginning of this series. Um, people have been uh, saying to me, oh, I can't wait till we start Ephesians. I can't wait till we start Ephesians. So here we are. I'm a little excited, a little nervous because, um, you know, there's a lot in this book and I'm praying that God would use it in a way to really bless us as a community. Um, this ties into our vision for the year, which is to be the church. We want to think about what does it mean in all the depth and richness of the church to be the church in this city. And the book of Ephesians is really about that. It's about being the church. It's about what does it mean to be the church. And so uh, we're going to go on a journey um, to discover that. Uh, We're about to find out what it means to be the church. Um, There's a metaphor in this Ephesians for the church that's uh, used by Paul. Uh, It's the temple. He refers to the church kind of like a temple. And, you know, when you build a temple, you take a particular stone, a block, and you, you carve it, you hew it. Uh, and then you get it just to the right way, and then you put it with other blocks, and then they fit together, and they are built into a temple. And the idea uh, in the Old Testament is that God dwells in that temple. And the church is very much like that. We have, but the building blocks are not stone, they're people. And each person is taken by God and formed and fashioned just into the kind of person that was intended to be, and then those people are brought together And together they form this temple, but now it's not a building, it's a community. And in that community, God dwells. So this is the process that we're kind of going on. And it turns out that um, to be a good stone, to be a good good building block, we often think about uh, what do we have to do, and we think about church and religion and stuff, we think about what what do we do, but it turns out to be a good stone, to be a good building block is first less about what you do and more about who you are. This is a key element of the Christian faith. It, it's not a religion in the sense of a set of do's and don'ts, don'ts, first of all. It is a relationship that has a transformative effect on who we view ourselves to be. So it's not first or foremost what you do, but it's who we are. And that's what Paul's going to take us on Uh, in the very beginning, is a journey of discovery on who we are in Christ. And it's really one of life's great questions. Who are you? And just, you know, play with me, play with this idea with me for a little bit. Think about this. We all know that that we're kind of a thing. We're a thing, right? Isn't it weird that we have this consciousness that we're a thing that exists in this world, and we can reflect on that fact? But we, we wonder, what kind of a thing are we? Are we, you know, what value significance or worth do we attach to this thing that we are? And inside us, it seems there's this desperate need to answer that question. And we seemingly have to answer it over and over again whenever we go into a new environment or we go into a new community or we enter into a new set of circumstances, we find we have to ask the question, who am I? Again, and what am I in the midst of this new setting? How do I reflect on all that's around me? What's my value? What's my significance? What's my purpose? And so 
Um, this longing propels us in some ways through life. It's, it's one of those things that keeps the world interesting. Everybody's driving towards this search for significance and meaning and purpose in life. And it's why we do so many of the things that we do. It's why we get up in the morning. It's why we go to work sometimes. It's, it's why we have relationships. It's, it's all part of this pursuit of meaning and significance. It's why people decide to do reality TV shows, right? Um, because they're pursuing some sort of value or worth or all kinds of things are motivated by this. And ultimately, this is one of the questions that will drive us towards a pursuit of God. To, to discern, to, to seek, is there a God? And if so, what significance does he have in relation to my own value and worth? But we, we tend to bounce through life um, seeking you know, some sort of value in all kinds of possible sources. We think of competencies, you know, uh, well, I'm the guy who's really good at X or Y or Z. And that might be something we use to determine our value or our worth. Or we, we think of accomplishments. I'm, I'm the one who did X or Y. You know, people, people know me as that, that person. Or physicalities, you know, handsome or beautiful. Notorieties, we're, we're known as the person who, who is this or that. Um, we, we search for significance in people's adulation, you know. Oh, he's so great or she's so great at this or, or that or the other thing. And we find value and, and meaning and purpose in that. Or the level of responsibility that we have. Sometimes we think, well, I must be valuable because I'm responsible for so many things. I have these important things to take care of and that makes me feel significant in the world. Or acquisitions, the things that we acquire. You know, sometimes we can attach or find, try to find meaning or significance in being you know, the first one to get that new iPhone or in being the one that has this kind of a car or this thing or that other thing. There are all kinds of ways in which we pursue meaning and significance and value and worth. And we never find, though, in these things, in any one of them, the permanent satisfaction that we crave. We don't find it, the permanent satisfaction we crave. But in Ephesians chapter 1, we find a description of the value that God wants to assign to us. And if we read this description carefully, if we read it and really understand it, if we accept it and believe it, allow it to seep into our souls, then we're going to find ourselves increasingly able to resist seeking worth in all the empty places where we traditionally seek it. And we'll be free to be who we are in whatever circumstance we may find ourselves. And and isn't that something that we deeply long for, is not to have to to try to pretend or to seek after or to fabricate value or worth, but simply to be the person God made us to be, redeemed and reformed by His work in whatever circumstance that we're in. See, this is the power of getting this question, who are you, right? And this is what Paul wants us to help us with this morning. And so look with me in the beginning of the book of Ephesians. And all this then piles into what does it mean to be the church? Because as, as we gather together as people who have their identity rooted in Christ, then we collectively become something new and something more powerful and more potent 
in the world. Now, this uh, verse, the verses that we're going to look at today in chapter 1, start off with two verses that are kind of a description, an introduction, and then it goes into this long verse 3 through 14, which in the original language is actually one sentence, and it's one of the most magnificent sentences ever written in the history of the world. I'm going to read the whole thing, but I'm only going to preach on verses 1 through 6. I'm going to break it into three parts because it's so, there's so much here. So when I read this, you're going to feel a little bit like you're drinking from a fire hose. But that's okay. Just let it wash over you. Drink in what you can. Get soaked in it. And then know that today and then the next two weeks, we are going to be wrestling and unpacking all that is involved with this text, verses 1 through 14. So Ephesians 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. We will learn later that Paul is actually in prison when he writes this, which is not insignificant considering he's talking about issues of identity. What is it like to be sitting in prison? How does that mess with your sense of identity and value and worth? Paul writes to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. And we'll probably talk about Ephesus a little bit later. Um, Andrew Franklin talked about some of the characteristics of the idolatry. But it was a port city, very much like where we are, intellectual, spiritual battle going on, idolatries, uh, very many characteristics with where we are. Verse 2, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose or good pleasure of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance." until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Amen. Now, there are three movements here that we're going to look at over the three weeks that we have to spend in this passage. And really, you could break it down like this. In the first part, Paul's saying, your past is blessed. In the next part, he's saying, your present is blessed is blessed, and in the last part he's saying your future is blessed. And so he's going to break it down uh, in those three ways. And so today 
we're going to be looking at this idea that your past is blessed. And so I'm excited to be able to spend three weeks on this particular passage. I've only ever preached it before as one, which is just way too much to do. Of course, this morning I was looking online and uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, a famous preacher of decades past, uh, took 12 sermons to do what I'm going to do in one sermon today. So, um, in fact, for this whole passage, he, he did about 25 sermons. And I actually made it, I posted that on our Facebook in-house page. So if you want to continue to soak more deeply in this text over the next weeks, then I encourage you to look those up and listen to them. You'll have to do about one a day over the next uh, three weeks to get it all done. But um, you can can get it done. Uh, It'll be great. And you'll be up here preaching instead of me. Um, Great. Okay, so let's, let's talk about this, our past being blessed. I want to talk about this in three different movements today. First of all, what has happened? How is it that our past is blessed? And how does this change our identity? Then I want to talk about how has it happened? And then I want to talk about why has it happened? Why is God doing this thing that's so wonderful and glorious? So first of all, what has happened? Now, uh, several things have, have happened here, and I want to just outline them from the text. The first of all, it's this, this maybe difficult words that are used. We have been chosen and predestined. So we were blessed in the past by being chosen and predestined by God. There's a great debate about these terms, what it means to be chosen, what it means to be predestined. And those of you who've been around the church, you've probably witnessed this debate and you've probably tried to figure out some of the, these tough questions yourself. Um, and so we have to spend a little bit of time on that. I think sometimes the debate steals the power away from these words. And so um, there are really two sides to the issue. Um, To kind of break it into hopefully a simple form is we have to think in terms of of whether or not we choose God or God chooses us. Those are kind of the two sides of the discussion about chosenness and predestination. And both of them come with some challenges of understanding. So if um, it's all on us to choose God, then our relationship with God, our salvation, as we call it, is contingent upon us as human beings. It makes it seem like we have ultimate power in this relationship with God. And then the flip side, if if it's all on God, if it's all about God choosing us, then we have a tendency to feel like machines or, or droids who don't really have any decision in the process God decides everything, and so what's the point anyway, right? So there's two sides to this question, and the debate is which one is it? The Bible conveys, actually, both sides. That God chooses us, and that we are responsible for the decisions that we make. Both of them are presented in Scripture, and here we have emphasis on God choosing, but in other places in the Scripture, there's emphasis on our, our uh, having responsibility for how we respond to God. And I've racked my brain uh, on this one uh, a good bit in seminary. I remember going into my professor's office and sitting with him and, and just going round and round on this question. And at the end of the day, my great answer to this and how these two fit together, the idea that God is sovereign, he's in control, and we are responsible My great answer to this question is, I don't know. I don't know how those two fit together. And that's okay. Because I'm finite and God is infinite. 
And if there are moments where I can't completely understand how God works in the world, that's probably uh, expect, to be expected, right? And this was one of those moments for me. I don't know how it fits in that God's both in control all the time and that we have real responsible choices. Maybe it has something to do with God existing out of time. That's been one of the arguments that people have made. I don't know how it all fits together. But what I do know is that Scripture teaches both of those, that God is in control and that we have real responsibility. And so I live my life on that basis. I live my life on the understanding that God's in control and that I have to make real choices. And that goes true with our relationship with God as well. So I may not know how to explain chosenness perfectly and predestination. I may not know how to explain that, but I do know what the point is. And here's the point. Is that if you were in Christ... You are not an accident to God. Paul didn't write this so we could have an argument about the philosophical nature of being chosen or not in God. He wrote this to confirm one simple truth. And that is, is that you are not an accident to God. You may be in communities or relationships where you feel sometimes like, wow, does anybody care if I'm even here? Does anybody know I'm here? Do I matter? Am I, am I crashing some party that I wasn't actually invited to? Let me just tell you, when it comes to your relationship with, the, with God, if you are in Christ, you need to know that you are chosen and you are predestined and that God wants you there in relationship with Him. And that simple truth is meant to make you confident and bold and secure in your identity. That's why Paul writes it. That's why the Holy Spirit speaks it through Paul. That's why it comes to us. So the first one is simply that blessing of being chosen. And we'll talk about that a little bit more. But the other blessing in this text is this idea of being made holy and blameless. Verse 4. In Christ, we are made holy and blameless. Now, there are very few people before whom, honestly, I can stand and feel totally blameless. Now, holy is to be set apart for. Blameless is to be without accusation. And there are very few people in the world that I can stand before and think, I have never done anything even moderately harmful towards this person. I was in Yosemite a number of years ago, and uh, I saw somebody that I uh, was a friend of mine from Santa Barbara or something, and uh, we saw each other and said, hey, how you doing? And she had this woman with her, and I said, oh, is this your mother? Hmm. It was her friend. And she was not happy about me suggesting that she might be her mother. And we could not have a conversation beyond that point. This woman kept coming. I think she even punched me in the arm one time. You know, I could not stay. If I saw that woman, I haven't seen her since. God has been gracious to me. If I saw her, you know, I would be, I would have that feeling of blame, right? I would not be able to forget what I said. And, and just about, I mean, I could go down the line and just about anybody on the planet that I've interacted with, I could feel that way about. And doesn't that shape the way I move through the world and, and how I think? I mean, it kind of, it's constricting, it's stressful, it's 
weighty. It's a lot of baggage. Well, let me just tell you something. God is saying when you stand before Him, you have no baggage. None. Holy and blameless. That's a blessing. And then there's a third blessing, which maybe is even more significant. That's the blessing of adoption. One of my professors used to say, of all the blessings in the, in the Scripture, you know, sanctification or justification or election, of all these, the pinnacle, the highest is adoption. All these others are are aimed towards bringing about adoption, which is when God determines, he signs the papers like when you adopt a child, that you are now my son or daughter. You are part of my family. And in those days, when they adopted somebody, the adopted child became exactly like the natural born child. No difference in rights. And God is saying, uh, all of this is meant to adopt you into my family. You are my adopted son or daughter. You have all the rights that go with being part of my family. And this is the blessing that lasts through eternity, right? Because we, we die and, 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 and in heaven, we continue to live as adopted children. Children brought into the family of God. It's something we enjoy for all eternity. And so in this, Paul sitting in prison, humble surroundings... If I were sitting in prison, I'd be questioning my own sense of value. What am I doing? What's my purpose? What's my worth? Paul, sitting in prison, can write one of the greatest statements of a person's value and worth. And we're only just scratching the surface. We've got more to uncover in the coming weeks. And it's all wrapped up in our being not an accident to God, God choosing and predestining, and our being holy and blameless before God, and then lastly, are being adopted. There was an article in the paper in Chicago uh, a while back about people who had lost their sense of identity. And I guess this happens quite frequently. They show up uh, on the doorstep of one of the police stations, and they don't know who they are, and nobody else knows who they are. And they can't find any family members. They can't find anybody to identify they become wards of the state, and they will go into some sort of care facility, and apparently it happens all the time. And there was a story uh, in Chicago about this man. They named him Carlos. He probably had a stroke, and he was in the care facility for 13 years, and nobody knew anything about him. And he couldn't speak because he'd had a stroke, and they would tell him things, and, and all he would do is, is just laugh and, and giggle at what they said. He was a very, very happy man, but... They just didn't know anything about him. Until one day, through a series of circumstances, they discovered his identity. And it happened they discovered his identity on his birthday, his 53rd birthday. And one of the workers in the care facility walked up to him, and she bent down low and whispered into his ear this name. Crispin Moreno. This man who always giggled at everything they said was totally silent. And tears started streaming down his face. He hadn't heard his real name in 13 years. He didn't even know, he didn't remember 
what his real name was. Here's what God is doing. He is bending down low to your ear. And he is whispering into your ear your real name. Your real identity. You are his chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed child. That's who you are more than anything else in this world. And if we allow that truth to sink deeply into our souls, it changes everything. It changes how we look at ourselves and how we look at others and how we move through this world and and the struggles that we have. And if Paul could say that sitting in prison, we could say it. So what has happened is that God has bent down to speak your real name, your real identity. That's who we are. That's the blessing that God has brought about. And we're going to explore and unpack that a little bit more. There's a lot more in this text. So next week and the week after, we're going to do that. But let me just move on to our next question this morning. How has it happened that God has done this? spoken this blessing. How has it happened? And the answer is, and this is always a good way to read your Bible. When you're reading your Bible, you've got your pencil in your hand. What words are repeated or what phrases are repeated in the text that you're studying? And in this particular text, there are a couple of words and phrases that are repeated. One of them is this idea in Christ. In this short number of verses, we have three different versions. In Christ, and then in verse 4, in Him, referring to Christ, and then Verse 6, in the beloved, also referring to Christ. So all of this goodness, all of this identity transformation has come about in Christ. It all happens in Christ. So do you want, let me ask you, do you want this new identity? Do you want to be defined by God rather than the world around you? If you do, then get in Christ. Now what does that mean? To get in Christ, to be in Christ, is to allow Christ's atoning work on the cross to be attributed to your sin so that the punishment that comes from the sin of this world, we want there to be justice, we want there to be punishment, the punishment for it goes on Christ rather than you. That's the story of the life of Jesus. We become partakers of that story when we place our faith in Christ. So when we see the person of Christ and the work of Christ, and we say of the person and the work of Christ, I believe. That's what it means to be in Christ. So this morning, if you're uncertain as to whether you're in Christ... You can right now, even as we're reading these words in Scripture and talking about these words in Scripture, you can say, Heavenly Father, I want to be in Christ. I believe in Christ. I believe in His atoning work on the cross. I believe He is the Messiah, the Son of God. I believe He's the one that the Scriptures teach. And as you say that, God will hear you and you will be in Christ. And all the blessings that we're talking about will be true of your life. The identity that we're talking about will be your identity. 
See, this is the human responsibility part. So we have a responsibility to respond to the work of God. And we respond by faith. That's all. That's all, that's all it is. Responding in faith. And everything changes. So, first of all, how did this happen? It happened in Christ. And so, it's important for us to consider whether we are in Christ. We're in Christ by faith. But it also happened with the pleasure of the Father. See, this whole transaction that's going, it's not like this dispassionate sort of transaction that's happening uh, in the world with, 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 with the Father blessing and changing our identity. It's, it's a very relational, personal kind of a thing. And why can I say that? Because in this passage we read, it says, the, the word in, in verse 5, look with me in verse 5, he did this according to the purpose of his will. But actually, I think that word, is more better translated, the good pleasure of his will. So he did this according to the good pleasure of his will. Now, that speaks of somebody who's not just simply doing something in a dispassionately transactional kind of way, but somebody who really means what they're doing. Somebody who is passionate and and there's pleasure involved. And, 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 And he gave us also... It says, his beloved. Now, his beloved, there, it's a capital B in your scripture. It refers to Jesus himself. Jesus is the very best of God. Jesus is the heart of God. Jesus is is God himself. Jesus is, is what God has to offer. And that's what he does, in fact, offer. He offers us his best. This isn't just sort of a dispassionate transaction. He gives us his very heart in the person of Jesus Christ. So that... He could bless us. Remember I said about underlining words that, have, that happen over and over? Well, the word bless happens four times in this passage that we've been reading. He did this because he wants to bless us. Now, bless is something that you do for people that you love. God loves us. And so he blesses us. And all this reminds me of that phrase we've often said, um, that God doesn't just love you. He likes you. You've had that relationship where, yeah, I love that person, but, you know, I don't want to be around him. And we think about God that way sometimes, right? He loves us, but he really doesn't want to be around us. But the signs are the opposite. He adopts us. It's his good pleasure. He wants to bless us. He gives us his very best. All that is indicative of somebody who actually likes us and wants to be around us, wants to do life with us. He doesn't just tolerate, but actually enjoys. And this is the truth of God. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. It was his joy to bring you in to the family. So how has this happened? It's happened in Christ, and it's happened by the good pleasure of the Father. And lastly, why has all this happened? Why has God embarked on this journey to redefine who we are? And there would be many, many answers to this, and we'll get into some of the other answers. But in this text that we're looking at, there's this phrase in verse 6. All of this happens to the praise of his glorious grace. To the praise of his glorious grace. It's a unique kind of a phrase. Um, Praise is an attribute, excuse me, grace is an attribute of God. And all of this occurs to lift up and bring glory to not just God himself, but an attribute of God, 
which is his grace. And grace means, in its simplest form, unmerited favor. So because of God's grace, another way to say that is we have unmerited favor. We have favor with God. He likes us. He loves us. Not because of any merit in us. That's what grace means. And I would submit to you that grace is actually, we talk about it a lot, comes up in the Bible a lot, but I think in life, grace is actually a fairly rare thing for us to encounter. Many of our relationships run not on grace, but they run on merit. What have you done for me? Have you accomplished? Have you achieved? You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so uh, when C.S. Lewis walked into a room where a bunch of professors were discussing the uniqueness of Christianity, he said, why is Christianity different from other religions? His immediate response was grace. Grace is the thing that makes Christianity unique. Without grace, Christianity is just a religion of do's and don'ts. That's what we think of religion as. But with grace, at the very center of it, it becomes a relationship, unmerited favor with a living God. It's not, it's not a religion, it's a relationship. Grace is at the very center of the Christian faith. It's why it was shocking in past June in Charleston when there was that horrendous sh- shooting in the AME church. Do you remember that? This man came into this Bible study in this black church and he sat there for a whole hour and prayed with them. And then he pulled out a gun and, and killed nine people. Killed or injured nine people. That was shocking. But perhaps equally as shocking was a few days later when he was being arraigned and the families of the victims were in the courtroom. And do you remember what they did? They said, we forgive you. Now, I don't know how they got there. I mean, I'm still amazed that they would get to the place where they could say that. But what I do know is when... I was in any room and people mentioned that story, you could hear a pin drop. Because people recognize something magnificent has happened, something unusual. Grace was extended to somebody who didn't deserve an inch of it. And whenever we see that, we stop. It's awesome, it's unusual. It's incredible. And I think that's why Paul writes this phrase, to the praise of his glorious grace. Because grace is shocking. And it's glorious. And what does glorious mean? All through the scripture, when it talks about glory, the, the closest thing we can get is a metaphor of light. Light emanating forth. Glory, if you were to put glory into a physical realm, it would be like light emanating forth. That's kind of what glory is. But glory isn't a physical thing. But we can try to understand it. So apply that to the word grace. Where there is grace, it's as if there is light emanating forth and casting itself, making all that's around it merely bask in its light slash glory. Okay? I'm trying to understand what Paul's talking about here. What do you mean to the praise of his glorious grace. And what he means is that wherever there is grace, there is glory that scatters out from it. So I think of, I keep thinking of fireworks when I think about this. 
when you're at the fireworks show and the firework explodes and your friend is next to you and there's that moment where there's the great explosion and that's wonderful. And then I, my favorite moment is right after when there's kind of a silence, especially those fireworks that rain down and there's lots of light and everybody's sort of silent as they watch it and you look at your person next to you and their face is glowing in the midst of it. There's something like that that takes place when the gospel of grace is manifest in the world. There's a glory that comes with grace. And we see that like in the forgiveness and the Charleston thing. There's something unique and special. And it sort of cast a light across our whole nation when they did that. And we basked in it. Well, how much more when Jesus went to the cross to offer himself an atoning sacrifice so that the Father could give favor to us, grace to us. Somebody was reminding me of last year in San Diego when they had a 30-minute fireworks show and they accidentally set them all off at the same time. And in 15 seconds, they lit 30 minutes worth of fireworks. And (laughs) imagine the glory, right? Boom! This is what God has done in the gospel. He has exploded beauty in grace across our universe. And it is us, for us, to bask in it and then to explode little, small, gracious opportunities in the lives of the people around us. Let's try that this week. Try giving grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it. See what happens. And let that inform the way you think about how God sees you. Yeah, you're going to give grace to somebody who doesn't deserve it, and it's going to be like, okay, I'm going to give you grace. And then you're going to think about all the ways that God has given grace to you. And then you're going to know that you're truly loved. You're going to know what your identity is. This is the amazing thing. If we allow God to define us, we give him glory. So if you, here's the other, if you don't allow God to define you in this way, you are stealing from his glory. It's an act of worship. You can't really steal from God's glory because he doesn't really need us. But in a sense, it's an act of worship to, to accept our identity in Christ. It brings him glory. It reflects on his greatness. So, Lord, would you help us to allow you to define us? We want to be defined by you. We don't want to be defined by whether we're competent. We don't want to be defined by, you know, our accomplishments or our physical abilities or looks or anything. We don't want to be defined by what people know us for or how they praise us or the amount of responsibility we have or the things that we've acquired. None of those will suffice. We want to be defined by you. We want to be your chosen, adopted, beloved, redeemed children. And even though we might be in prison, we want the freedom that comes from, and the security that comes from knowing who we are in you. We want to stop chasing identity and worth and value and meaning in all the empty places. We want to find it in you. 
And part of that is understanding this thing of grace. And we will understand it when we give it. So help us to give grace to others this week. That we might have a kind of a lab experiment for understanding the incredible grace that you've poured out on us. And that you might be glorified in the midst of it all. In Jesus' name, amen.